I believe that this OEM has got certain data that could assist this investigation, then if it is made available, you may have it heard in a private hearing if it is, you know, sensitive information or commercially sensitive information to, um, you know, manufacturers of devices or technology. Con concerned about privacy, we'll take the time to read and understand, you know, what what's going on with regards to that. But um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very challenging, time consuming and, um, expensive field to be fair because the automotive industry is not cheap. Okay. Hi, Noel. How are you? Hey, I'm good, Denise. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for taking the time. No, thanks for having me on. I really like the stuff that screens are doing and for us to be able to have a chat around the stuff that you've going on in your world and some of the stuff that's going on in our world. Um, it's really good to collaborate and I think you're doing some real good stuff. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you guys today. Yeah, and you're a, a very particular guest. So just a little background. I am an avid watcher of crime documentaries. And um, when I first looked at your LinkedIn profile, the first words that I saw was forensic investigation. And of course, my um, crime peaky brain immediately jumped to the thought of that's exactly what you're doing. But that's not exactly what you're doing. So you do have a background as a police officer for a very long time. Right? Yes, well, um, 17 years, yes. And yeah. I was responsible in the main for investigating fatal road collisions as part of a dedicated department as um, my career ended up. And I guess my skill set was incorporating um, different um, skills into that investigation, whether it be forensic collision investigation, um, digital investigation, interviewing of witnesses and drivers that have been involved. Um, and pulling all that together to, to try and find the truth and to give people answers as to, you know, why um, somebody had lost their lives. And as things developed, as part of a dedicated department, dealing with that amount of death is not healthy, in my opinion. And because that's all you're doing, you, you're just exposed to that all the time. Whenever you go to work, it's just, you know, devastation. Um <clears throat> Combined with a lot of other factors that would be a separate podcast in its own right, I decided to make the shift out of the police and to pursue a career um, related to um, the investigation of serious crime or serious collisions involving vehicles and to have the freedom to do some things that was happening in the digital world and in the vehicle space that perhaps I wouldn't have been able to do in a restricted role in a, in a massive organisation. So we've at a company now for the last um, seven years. And this supports serious crime and serious collision investigation by the way of acquiring data from vehicles that can potentially assist in either a serious collision investigation or indeed a serious crime because of the, the nature in where a lot of vehicles are going in the sense that they are becoming data hubs that can assist in that, in that type of thing. So I've got the background of dealing with um, serious cases in criminal courts, but also in coronial courts where you're trying to give people the answers as to why their loved ones died. And I'm a great believer in trying to get to the truth and, and finding out what's happened to give people answers in their most uh, difficult circumstances, really. So that's essentially where, where we're at after um, yeah, t sort of 20, 23 years I started out uh, as a police officer, but still actively involved, but not as the 
police officer as such as an external um, forensic provider. So you couldn't let go of your police career <laughs> entirely, but you made it part of your new job. Yeah, exactly that. Um, policing has changed over the last, um, it's constantly changing. Um, it, it will never be the same, but I, I think um, the police need to pull on um, specialists now in all sorts of different types of investigations. And in years gone by, police officers and police um, forces would try and get that internal capability. Whereas now there's a lot more shift towards um, utilizing experts in all sorts of different fields and specialists in various different fields to support the police um, in their efforts to to try and police, you know, a, a difficult world sometimes. And the advent of you know digital communication and you know digital crimes and the way that crimes are being committed and facilitated these days, um, it does re it does require that. And I think people are whereas before the police used to be sort of a career for life. There's a lot more people di dipping in and dipping out, maybe getting that experience in various different areas. And, and it's, it's a little bit more um, of a relying on a, a whole group of different people with different skill sets and different backgrounds to be able to tackle things effectively, really. Now, you said you've been doing this for seven years now. So were you one of the first people to start a business like that or were people before you that did a similar thing, but not maybe as detailed as you, or did you have a different approach to the matter? I think here in the UK, we were maybe one of the um, first people to offer um, digital downloads of vehicles. Um, and at the time around 2016, the downloading of a car for an investigation um, in the UK was a one-off. It, it wouldn't necessarily be a routine um, thing to do. We certainly weren't the first in respect of, you know, digital evidence because there are a lot of digital forensic companies that will, um, you know, download mobile phones and computers. And, you know, that's been going on, you know, since, you know, the 90s, really, in respect to digital devices and, and how they've integrated. I guess the vehicle just presents a different challenge to a more traditional digital forensics because of the technology that are being used on a vehicle. And people, at the time we started, had limited solutions to check um, you know, vehicles to get data from them that might assist in serious investigations. I perhaps got a little bit um, aware of this whilst I was still in the police in respect of just the crash data, shall we, shall we say, around a vehicle, what's happening in the last five seconds before um, before a crash occurs, and, and started to see some technologies that were in use for getting investigative data off a vehicle for that type of investigation. The stuff from infotainment was very, very much in its in its sort of infancy at that stage. Mm -hmm. I'd say globally there was, you know, there was um, things happening in other countries um, whereby I was alerted to the fact that this type of data was available. And as a as an investigator, that was really interesting to me to think how that could help and how, how that could interface into a serious investigation and, and crack a lot of crimes, really. So um, we had a passion for that, but the difficulty to get data off these systems um, presents unique challenges, really, that requires, again, sub-skill sub sets from um, different different areas, whether it be automotive and master technicians that are working with vehicles versus 
people that can um, take a chip off a circuit board and then start to reconstruct data and understand proprietary file systems that have been developed as part of a, an infotainment system. So it's a really challenging role because if you just imagine, I'm sure you're aware how many vehicles are on the road, how many different systems are yeah. out there. <laughs> um, and you've got to deal with and manage people's expectations because you may give them data from a vehicle um, and, and it'd be really good and helpful. And then they'll come along um, the next time they've got a vehicle involved, but it could be slightly different make, model, year, and it's got completely different technologies on there. And you may not have a solution straight away to be able to get that off. So there are, there's a lot of expectations to manage uh, and it's just a, a really challenging area from that point of view in, in respect to the volume of different vehicles that you know we can come across. And if I'm dealing with vehicles that are on the roads in Europe and the UK, um, you know, I could end up um, going to Asia or the States or um, Australia and see vehicles that I've never encountered before and, mm -hmm. and not have any solutions for that. So it's a really still still a big growing space as far as the vehicle system forensics community is concerned and the solutions um, are by no means um, complete. Like anything, it'll be an evolving an evolving world as to as to where we go. Um, without jumping too far ahead, um, you know, we're already in a situation where a lot of data is on the cloud anyway um, to do with modern mm -hmm. vehicles. But I guess the vehicle population, once a car's out there, it could be out there for 20 years or more, and it could still be involved in serious crimes 15 years down the line after rolling off the production line, whereby data is being stored physically on the vehicle that you would still access. So um, there's, there's, there's plenty of scope for um, work in the future in, in this field, whether it be jumping forward to where vehicles may end up and where data may end up mm -hmm. um, versus what, what's out there now and what could be out there for another 10 or 15 years. So it's a constant learning process. Absolutely, yeah. Um, no two days are the same. It's very challenging, very frustrating. Um, you can be repeating the same process and expecting a different result, which some people uh, define as insanity. Um, but th that's just sometimes the nature um, of the work. Um, but it can be very rewarding as well when you do find a solution or you do get data off the car for you know, an investigation that um, either nobody else can do or it gives you the answers that nowhere else would have given you the answer um, you know, to, that, to that question. And if you're trying to find out the truth in respect to why somebody's died, then there can't be a bigger duty owed on another individual to investigate that death and they need to get to the right answers. Um, so it's, it's interesting, it's challenging, and getting the data is one thing, interpreting the data is, is, can be another and putting a reliance on that data as to what it actually means, um, you know, is, is also a key area of work analysis of, of data and how it interfaces with the investigation and what your interpretation of that data mm -hmm. is um, can be difficult um, because you might have a software engineer that has developed this system and put things in place for their purposes. You never speak to that person, or you never, you know, know their true intentions as to why they were recording that data and what it actually means. So you've got mm -hmm. a scratch under the surface. Can involve a lot of testing um, to validate and prove what you believe to be the case. So um, it's yeah, it's it's very very challenging, time consuming, and um, expensive field to be fair, because the automotive industry is not cheap. Yeah, that's true. And also, you mentioned it. Earlier, it's an ever-changing, 
I guess, department or um, area. So if you say there's a lot of different system, obviously, not only when it comes to design, but also a change for different generations or different countries. Now, how do you how do you approach this type of subject if you have different systems? Because you mentioned it's a lot of work. It's very, very detailed. It's very, I guess, hard sometimes. How do you approach different systems and different designs and also different designs in different countries or different infotainment systems for different generations? I mean, from our perspective, we're generally working immediately off what data is somebody after? And then we've got to look at the features of the vehicle as to whether or not that data type could be there and, and what, what's actually, you know, what, what the vehicle has been involved in. So, you know, very simplistically, if somebody was after GPS data as to where that vehicle had been, first of all, does it have an inbuilt sat-nav? Because some modern infotainment systems for different markets don't have um, an inbuilt sat-nav, they may be requiring it to be mirrored off the handset, such as Apple CarPlay or um, Android Auto. So we need to understand what features of this infotainment system are there. And then it's all about then solutions on knowing whether or not that system does actually store that data on, on some sort of storage medium inside the unit, whether it be a chip, whether it be a hard drive, um, whether it be embedded SD cards, embedded micro SD cards, um, and, it, and it's 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 trying to work out where on that unit is the data if indeed it is stored, um, and then it's a method to, to be able to get that data off. So, in a lot of cases, um, because we don't turn a vehicle down, um, it's kind of research on the hoof. Um, until we've done a system and seen a system and then know where it is to either develop a solution that we can use in-house to get that data off the next time we see that infotainment system. Um, or it's speaking to other people in the community and finding out whether or not they've experienced that unit before and what they what they found on it. Um, because if we're going to... Let's just take an example of wanting that GPS data off, say, a witness's car that might have had a suspect in it, and we want to show where that's gone. If that vehicle belongs to um, you know, a witness, and the only way we can check for data is to maybe remove a, a chip off the printed circuit board. Mm-hmm. We, we could be into three to four thousand pounds to replace that infotainment oh. module so that they get the car back in the same state that it's in. Um, and that's another factor, you know, is the cost. And, and like I touched upon, the automotive industry is not cheap. Don't don't go and buy a car. Don't go don't go buy a car of parts and try and build it. Just buy the car outright because as, as expensive as it looks, it would be a lot more expensive to buy it by individual components. Um, you know, when we're talking th- some, in some cases, you know, three to four thousand pounds for an infotainment, uh, you know, for an infotainment system. Um, in other cases, and, and this is where you, you've got to try and reach out to different areas of the automotive industry where cars have been damaged, um, you might want to get your hands on those damaged cars so that you've got some components that you don't mind damaging and checking so that you can then better project in the future whether or not that, that vehicle and that system is worthy of, of pursuing for that data type. Um, but the, the salvage market is massive and people don't, really want to um, give away components that they could be selling uh, as part of salvage um, 
for people that are willing to put second-hand parts onto vehicles as well. So it's, it, it, it can be problematic um, from that point, but it's, it's mainly research as we go forward. So you have to convince people to agree to give them. We do, the thankfully. Cars yeah, sometimes. thankfully we've got some, um, shall we say, open-minded investigators that mm-hmm. kind of um, take the approach that, well, we want to check because somebody's dead, and we don't mm-hmm. want to be in a situation whereby we've missed something. And you've got to, it forms part of a strategy, really, as to what else is going on in the investigation, as to whether or not you need. You know, you need that. But if you've got nothing, you've got no CCTV, you've got no witnesses, um, you, you're stuck. You might have a you might have a body that's missing that you, that you think's dead and this car might have transported the body to a deposition site. Um, then the decision becomes easier to do that. And for us, it's, it's good on two fronts. One, we're helping the investigation but two if it's a system we've not seen before it allows us to learn so we're really grateful to those people that give us that flexibility um, and robustness um, and, and it all depends on how strong the investigator is really as to how they're going to deal with that person if they're going to make a claim against them for I don't know loss of a part or you've changed the vehicle if I take it back to my earlier days in policing if somebody had some intelligence to say that the house three doors down from me, we're dealing drugs. The police may go and raid that house, knock the front door down, um, mm-hmm. go in, and in those days, perhaps the police wouldn't replace the front door because they had good intelligence to suggest that drugs were being dealt on there. Similarly, now you want to knock the door down on the infotainment system to see whether or not there is GPS data there. Do you necessarily need to replace the infotainment system? Or do you want to be a little bit more robust with your suspect, depending on their level of involvement and what evidence you've got to say that they are involved, if if that is a factor in, in that as well? So can be difficult, but equally, there are a lot of non-destructive solutions that we use techniques for to get the data off. And maybe if we are destructive in the first place, we can then develop a non-destructive solution because we can work out how data is getting onto the chip from other areas of the circuit board and we interface with the circuit board differently um, on the next time. So somebody has to, in the first instance, carry the can, so to speak, and make that decision, but then that can mean that the next time they get that type of car, we might have a non-destructive solution for it. So it might have cost it in the first place, but on the second occasion, um, we're not as as destructive in our approaches. and then there are other sort of tools and techniques that you can use within the automotive industry as regards um, diagnostic tools and other third-party devices, shall we say, that we would plug into the vehicle to um, you know, try and, and read data, all depending on the nature of the investigation. Now, would you say there are systems that are easier to investigate than others? Um, yes, Yes, there are some for which we have solution for and they give us good data. And then there are, yeah, there are ones when people come to us and say, oh, we've got this vehicle and we work out it's a certain system. It's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in your head, you're already thinking, no. (laughs) Yeah, you're kind of like, yeah, no, I don't want to get involved in that. I had that instance yesterday, actually, and and it's like, uh -uh, I don't really want to get involved with that, but... Um, yeah, it, you can't really say no, right? No, that's right. No, you just got to take the roof yeah. with a smooth, as they say. 
So since we're talking about very deep designs of different infotainment systems, I want to talk to my assistant for today, Tom. <laughs> Could you pull up the website, please? Is it on there? Oh, perfect. So please go to the BMW S7. I think you've already done that. And then let me have a look at the HMI architecture. Perfect. Now, I picked the system specifically because just we have other cars in the database in case anyone wants to check. But the, the BMW i7 is a really good example of a very in-depth infotainment system. So why don't you go ahead um, and click on the different tabs for me, please, and just open up a little bit just to see how far we can go for the infotainment system structure. Now, this is definitely one of the cars that has one of the deepest infotainment levels, I would say, that I've seen so far. Um, obviously, you, you said this before, it does take some time to get to know a certain feature, and it's not always easy. Um, so do you have an opinion on how these systems could be, for example, altered to make it easier um, to navigate through them, not only as you as an investigator, but also maybe for users? Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you've got on the screen there, because it as Tom's going through those, um, you know, sort of menus and sub-menus, it just shows you how complex um, a modern infotainment system is. So it presents a couple of challenges. Um, one, from an investigation point of view, if you wanted to go through those menus and navigate to a certain area. I mean, sometimes I've got in a modern vehicle and, and I can't even get the mileage up, you know, just to record the mileage because, you know, you've got that many different displays that can be put on the instrument cluster that maybe is working in tandem with the infotainment system as well. Um, that it does present challenges to people that are not used to that interface. And, and there are so many, and not everybody has the opportunity to interact with those interfaces, um, which is why I was um, keen to see the screen's product, really, because of the way that it's been developed, and it is really useful for investigators to do that. Um, but also, from a user perspective and a distraction point of view, um, it can be difficult as well. Um I don't know the answer to your question. I, I, I really don't know because I think it all becomes down to design and you've got mm -hmm. some good, really good design teams around knowing what people want and what I want as a user and be, to be able to do is completely different to, to somebody else. If I just give you the example of somebody that's got a little bit of OCD, I need my climate control to be showing the same temperature mm -hmm. Um, on either side, driver and passenger. If my passenger gets in and yeah. they change the temperature on their side, I can live with it. But as soon as they get out of the car, I need to reset that. And <laughs> I can find that really difficult on my own vehicle, you know, to to sometimes get that reset. So so that, from, from my point of view, that, that's important to me um, because as soon as I get driving again, I need to feel settled and, and know that those two figures that are shining at me are the same as daft as it sounds. Um, whereas 99% or 99.9% .9 of this audience would be just like, well, that's, that's not, that's not important to me from mm -hmm. a design perspective. So I think it, th it throws up a lot of challenges and, um, you know, personalization it, it is a thing to, you know, is a thing that's coming. In the automotive industry, we can already see that um, sort of transferring over from from your mobile device, um, and, and I guess it's it's difficult for all the different infotainment manufacturers, whether they be in house with an OEM 
whether they be third party that are um, interfacing with an OEM to get that, um, you know, to get that user interface and to reduce those menus down, um, as you see. Some people may want to geek out at all those different submenus and and, and mm-hmm. have all that complexity. Um, it's really difficult when you you think about how many people own vehicles globally and and, and trying to put that uh, into that space when we've got such a digital evolution going on, um, both on the on the smartphone itself and and the vehicle itself. That um, I think it's a really difficult question to answer i know mm-hmm. from a road safety point of view you know less would be best and the number of distractions that you could have from a modern infotainment system and design certainly the car that i'm running at the moment from a test point of view which is um, mercedes with the mbook system in um there's three different ways to control that um steering wheel control pad down by the um you know, where the gear lever would be, mm-hmm. and then the this, this screen itself. And I think as a, as a screen user in, you know, in, in the rest of the day, I'm more inclined to go to the screen, but it's not as probably safe as using the steering wheel. And navigating on the steering wheel controls is a, is a little bit more difficult, and I'm not sort of as accustomed to, to it than I am using the screen. And I think it can be a, a real big factor in, in, dis- in distraction as well for, for drivers and getting that sweet spot of limited menus doing what it needs to do is going to be really difficult uh, and is really difficult as, as we're in this phase at the moment of, of these infotainment systems that can be you know very complex um, to navigate if you just want to turn the heating down a couple of degrees you know on this inbox infotainment system you know the um, as well as the physical buttons for the heating ventilation, there is the digital ones that will rise up from the mm-hmm. uh, you know from the from the bottom of the screen, um, which I didn't know were there for, for you know for weeks. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess when we've got a new product and we want to put these features out, um, and infotainment does sell. You know, most adverts uh, surround infotainment and digital aspects. Long gone are the days of how efficient or how well manufactured a vehicle is, um, it's all around, um, you know, the digital stuff, then those features can sell. But then we go to a, a situation whereby electrification and people are spending a lot of time in their cars, then maybe you need that for those times when the vehicle's, um, you know, when the vehicle's stationary. And whilst some of those features are um, reduced when you are driving and you can't access them, I think there's a lot more that can be done to narrow that down and, and maybe that mm-hmm. would be some kind of solution to, as I'm talking to you now, to to improve road safety is is to limit the functionality of of, of some of the, shall we say, distracting um, elements of, of a modern infotainment system. Um, I know that they, there are only certain apps that can go on to CarPlay and things like that because of a, you know, a potential distraction. Um, but for me personally, um, I think there are still too many and it could be, it could be narrowed down as to what is available whilst you are actually, um, in move in moving. And just to finish off personalization, um, AI, I think as the, you know, either vehicle and vehicle account and owner of the vehicle become more in tune with one another, 
then um, you know you may end up in a position whereby you can personalize an infotainment system to the point whereby a lot of the stuff you don't need. And if I need a, a favorite button to reset my um, you know climate control to the same temperature at either side, then I can set that up in you know in there. And maybe maybe you can already do that, but I don't know. I don't know about it um, without doing it the way that, that I know to do it. And that can be a lot of the uh, things with vehicles. There is more than one way to get you know to get to the end result of doing what you, you're trying to do within those menus. You can often find a back door in settings somewhere to get you from I don't know map settings. Uh, you can go in through the navigation portal itself within the infotainment system into the nav settings but you can also find it in settings and there are you know different ways to get to different um, features in a vehicle as well and i don't know how much that is down to design and convenience or or what i'm not so sure but um, personalization that connectiveness between the manufacturer or the oem understanding what the individual is after is potentially a solution for that uh, from an investigation point of view, um, you know, no stone is left unturned. So we might want to go into every one of those menus that are available because if somebody <laughs> says, did you check the infotainment system? Yes, I manually went through it. And then somebody produced, say, the, um, you know, those um, HMI interfaces that you've shown on screen there. Well, did you check all the infotainment system or did you just check 20% of it? Uh, and it's difficult to know whether or not you've actually been through every every screen, and that that can be difficult and time consuming for an investigator as well. And I, I really don't see where the investigator can narrow that that down, other than learning that system. Mm-hmm. Um, but you imagine how many systems are out there, and and you know yourself, Denise, doing that type of work that you do. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a lot. It's, it's difficult, and you become sort of like skill set you have a skill set in that area of, of understanding infotainment systems and knowing where mm-hmm. to go for useful investigative data. <clears throat> so would you say there's a difference between a desirable design that people want or because people always want more in terms of design or functions or features and a design that would make sense safety-wise, just a minimum of features that would kind of decrease the chance of it's, road yeah, collisions yeah, happening yeah but again it's again it's difficult you've not only the driver in a car you've passengers that you need to keep entertained mm-hmm. and um how, how do you isolate the driver from controlling um something that a passenger might want to control and do um, without having their own screen and i know we see that a little bit on some of the more modern vehicles and dearer vehicles whereby um we might have that situation where the passenger has got an infotainment screen for themselves and the driver can't see that and they're sort of compartmented off and obviously the rear having their own screens um, and what have you. It could be a solution, but I think practically from a consumer perspective, trying to sell that car to somebody who's got a family um, is ultimately going to be a difficult sell. And, and as much as, you know, we could make the safest car in the world, but it probably wouldn't sell. And that's not what, Um, OEMs um, are about is is trying to find that it's trying to find that balance really um, in respect of when I say that's not what OEMs are OEMs are about safety um, but it's not just about safety it's about the other things that the vehicle offers Um, and then it's a really it's a really difficult task that 
the um, you know that the OEMs find themselves in when they're when they're developing vehicles and, fe- and features on there. Yes, as somebody who's a, a road safety advocate, it would be you'd never have the radio on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you'd never have any. You know, you wouldn't accept any phone calls. You wouldn't have that facility but unfortunately the world's you know not like who that are we and- kidding <laughs> <laughs> that's true now i can recommend you my car because i've talked about this last time because i have two hard keys and you can control climate just by turning the wheel that would be perfect for you <laughs> that's right yeah yeah well you know sim- simply is best and maybe we will end up i don't know i think it's, it's really difficult to design something that just does what it needs to do and gives the, the high percentage of people what what they need and sometimes we have to go down these rabbit holes um to to realize that actually yeah that that's too much and mm-hmm. the difficulty with the automotive industry is from design and you know design first to refinement to actually getting that vehicle out there when does a vehicle ever go out into the hands of customers come back, get refined before it actually gets launched. It gets launched, mm-hmm. and then we're into feeding back for the next model four or five years down the line. Um, so so maybe maybe we will do in the future that maybe we're, we're down in the weeds at the moment with a lot of this stuff, and, and maybe um, less will become more as, as we move forward in, in respect of design and features available within the vehicle. I don't know. Now, something that you've talked about, for a while is that infotainment systems, they often are a cause of distraction for drivers. And I've read this article and there was one quote that kind of hit me and it said, a car is basically um, a candy store of distraction at this point. Now, it also said that drivers are most of the time up to, I think it was 40 seconds, they're distracted from actual traffic because they're just using the entertainment system, they're using their phone, um, and also for a lot of people, their car has become sort of a mobile office. You know, we take calls, we text messages, we do everything with Apple CarPlay, Android, or whatever it might be. And the, the level of demand for different cars is most of the time it's either moderate or, or high just for the driver. Now, as you work as an investigator, is are those distractions of infotainment systems are those mostly the case for those fatal road collisions or at least to a high extent? It's really difficult it's really difficult to answer that in some regards um, because it would be different in different markets in the world, I guess um, because road safety is is different you know in different areas of the world here in the UK um, you know, we talk about speed being a factor, um, drink or drugs, distracted driving, uh, mobile phone use, which you could argue, um, you know, is the same, has been some of the, the lead causes of, of collisions. And for me, as a, as a former investigator of these type of incidents and dealing with this um, type of stuff, a lot, a lot of these incidents are are down to distraction or or just human, the fragilities of a, of a human being. Look but don't see, that that type of scenario whereby somebody thinks that they've looked and they might not even be distracted by infotainment. Um, they could be distracted by an argument they've had that morning with a partner, um, mm-hmm. which causes then you know a, 
a fragility within the human mind to, to not see things. Conspicuousy issues around not being able to see low winter sun as we've got now, um, and those those type of things. And sometimes you just can't get to those answers unless somebody's truthful and honest with you that they were actually distracted by the infotainment system. And from an investigation point of view, it's really difficult to prove that with the amount of infotainment and distraction that's available in the modern vehicle these days. Um, you know, years gone by, we used to talk about, you know, careless driving being um, changing the radio station on a, on a vehicle. So that was the distraction, you know, 40 years ago when you were trying to tune, you know, the next radio station off the, off the receiver and, and that's a distraction. So, you still got that, and, and the automotive industry and infotainment kind of like it, the technology is there to to minimise that to a degree, so long as you know what you're doing with it. I think it's it is a distraction that's potentially there. It just needs it, it needs to be managed, and I think it's just really difficult to work out how many people have actually been distracted by infotainment versus another you know fragility of the human mind, really. Um, it's there and people recognize it and acknowledge it to be a distraction. Um, the automotive industry is going through a really interesting time in the sense that we've got as much infotainment, entertainment coming into the vehicle as we've ever had, but we've got these levels of autonomy as well that are starting to increase and the, the two are, you know, are both increasing simultaneously. And I think the risk is... There's another risk in that drivers are feeling that their vehicle is safe, so they can be distracted to a degree. And the things that you mm. talk about, the mobile office, um, is it is it the infotainment that's distracting the driver, or is it the conversation with the other mm. with the other person? Um, it is it's creating a means to do that, but. Um, it's, it's difficult to know what the actual distraction was and whether or not the infotainment is a, is a cause of it. I guess one good thing to point out around this is when somebody's having a conversation, whether it be on a mobile phone, hands-free, um, in the vehicle with somebody else, one key factor there is that the other person on the other end of the line they don't know what the driver can see. They can't mm-hmm. see what is unfolding um, around them at that time. So they could be in full flow and really wanting to get their point across in a, in a conversation without being able to acknowledge where the driver's at in respect to that. And again, the driver can be then distracted by that because it's important what the other person's saying. Whereas if you've somebody else in the vehicle talking to somebody they can also see what's going on and mm-hmm. they can recognise that a situation is, is unfolding and and back off their conversation and leave that. As a passenger in a vehicle, most people would acknowledge at some point they may have had something important to say, but because of the dynamics of the road environment at the time, they've backed off their conversation and it stops that, it stops that dist- distraction. I guess the, the infotainment side of things and that mobile office candy store of distraction um, gives the driver the opportunity for the mind, to, you know, to wander, and um, for those people on the outside of that environment but are interacting with it, they've no, um, they've either a part to play by being responsible and not communicating with that person while they're driving, 
um, or acknowledging that they are driving and it's not a conversation that you would be having were they in the office potentially and that they may need to they mean they may need to break off um, you know from that particular um, conversation whereas they wouldn't do in an office environment now something that I've heard a lot recently is once we have self-driving cars all those problems will go away because you can do basically anything in your car because the car will drive by itself so you don't have to do it yeah. do you think this will change your line of work in any way will systems be more complicated then will this be easier for you um, or does it make no difference at all uh, it's a different it's a difficult one to see how, how things are going to play out really i i honestly believe whilst there are you you either you're you're either all computers or you're all human and i think while you've got humans interacting with computers um there's always going to be scope for things to go wrong and as much as oems and um, safety design engineers will you know foresee every conceivable scenario and try and plan for that in a design phase i've seen stuff that you you just can't plan for and you know when you're exposed to seeing how um, collisions can occur and what what can go on um i think it's going to be really difficult to do that we, we talk about um we we talk about cars being automated and and making things safer but let's just let's just stop and think about this for a minute because a lot of the casualties in road collisions are cyclists, motorcyclists, and pedestrians who are not in a self-driving car. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're human. They're going to be doing things that unless the machine has learned how to deal with a motorcyclist, how a motorcyclist might ride and drive differently to a car... Um, Certainly here in the UK, our roads um, are maybe not say as they are in the States, whereby you've maybe got a lot of freeways and stuff like that. We, you know, we've got a lot of, um, you know, um, traffic, country roads, um, other types of hazards that, that aren't particularly um, prevalent um, in other areas. And until you get a machine that's learned all those environments and different ways in which it can, I think there's going to be a, a phase that we go through that's, that's going to be a little bit, a little bit difficult and a little bit more protracted. When we do get into those smart cities, we've other infrastructure to consider. So when the you know when the traffic systems are talking to the vehicles, we're going to potentially proliferate the amount of investigative work that people are going to have to do to check the traffic lights were at fault that mm -hmm. they changed in sequence when they were supposed to do, and the messages went across from the car to the driver are we going to have these instances of drivers blaming the technology or you know on the car or in the infrastructure itself and it's, it's going to be a bit of a, an uncomfortable ride whereby a lot of learning is going to take place between investigators and developers of smart technology so another thing that we see often when it comes to self-driving cars or when it comes to infotainment systems in general a big topic is always data privacy. Um, now, something that I've read a lot is that modern cars are basically a privacy nightmare and that a lot of manufacturers have kind of shifted their focus from selling cars to selling data. 
Um, what is your opinion on that? Yeah, I don't think car companies are what they were originally. And, you know, there's no two is about it. A modern vehicle is, you know, is harvesting data. And it would be naive of us to think that the manufacturers and OEMs weren't utilising that for, um, you know, marketing purposes or for future revenue um, because they are um, by virtue of the technologies that are on the vehicle and the way that the vehicle is set up. But the manufacturers would argue that that's for the user experience because they're getting that personal information as the mobile phone providers are and the um, adverts that we may get on our smartphones as a result of doing a Google search, um, it, it may benefit the end user that if you've Googled tires because you're in need of some tires, that your infotainment screen, you know, flashes up that, you know, in a, in a couple of miles, you're going to be approaching a tire provider that's got discounts on. Is that useful? A lot of people would say that's useful and mm-hmm. and maybe want that or have the, the option to have that or the option to opt out of it. The byproduct of that, of course, is that you give your personal data up and um, some people don't like the idea of that. And by virtue of the fact that some of these systems have been designed perhaps before this has been fully thought about, then yes, we, as investigators, we're like, great, there's a lot of personal data on there that can assist <laughs> an investigation. Um, but I'm at a stage now whereby, you know, we're seeing a lot of personal data and there's a there's another risk here that it could facilitate more crime types as well in the sense that if I sell my vehicle and those systems aren't secure and I've got somebody with a little bit of knowledge um, around what I do, and they were potentially targeting me, then they could potentially buy my vehicle, watch, monitor where it's, you know, traded in at, and then go and, go and secure it and buy it. Unless the manufacturer is going to remove the infotainment module out of the vehicle and destroy it and put a new one in, there's still going to be residual personal data on that vehicle for which has not been deleted it could have been deleted off the user interface but it's still going to reside somewhere on on that system and so the infotainment system never forgets no. <laughs> um, well <laughs> not no it's, it's you know when you when you when you trade in your smartphone you know you know that it's potentially um wiped as, as much as it can be but there's potentially going to be some residual data there notwithstanding that yeah it's going to take a certain skill set to to get that data off if you were so interested in it but a vehicle's quite a, an expensive commodity as well. So you can't just start taking an infotainment module out and getting shut of it because that's going to drop the value of the car by a significant amount. Um, I, I remember a conversation a few years ago now whereby you can trade off your privacy and, and make the car cheaper. So I remember a conversation um, whereby if you wonder if, if, if this was a model, so the car's... X number of thousands of pounds, 40,000 pounds, you want to give up certain data types around your car, then somebody would pay you for that. And the car becomes mm-hmm. cheaper as as you go down the amount of data that you give up. So let's say, for example, um, you're out in a remote area of the world whereby they need to put a weather station in 
and it costs X number of thousands of pounds to put a weather station in to monitor when storms are coming, then um, if you get people of that area to give up their um, light data, shall we say, when they're putting the lights on, when they're putting the wipers on, and all that data and the GPS data, that can be harvested. Maybe that data could replace the weather station in projecting when the next storm could be coming. Would you be mm -hmm. happy to give your light data up, your um, wiper data up, and your GPS data up for X number of thousands of pounds? Mm -hmm. You then take it forward to a local authority that wants to know your chassis or suspension information, and they can identify GPS and they can identify where all the potholes are in the roads without having to send a scanner around, then that data could be sold off as well and you then reduce the cost of the vehicle. And that was the, that was the sort of model going down, all the different mm -hmm. things that, that you could do um, in that side of things. Um, people, If people want privacy, they've got to, they've got to pay for it. Um, ultimately, if they don't, then um, maybe not. But I think there is a lot of, at the moment, a lot of personal data floating around that people aren't really um, sure of. And we've got this disjoint between a little bit of an OEM and then a dealership because dealers are mm -hmm. just interested in selling cars. And as soon as you go into that showroom to buy a nearly new car or uh, you know um, trade a car in, they're not bothered about personal data. They're just, and the consumer isn't, they're just like new car, you know, stars in their eyes and, and yeah, get rid of the old car. It's gone now. Mm -hmm. The decision has been made to trade it in. Um, the deal is not really taking care of it. You've got another area, the, the hire company area, you know, just think about, uh, you know, hire car and how much personal data is on that. A lot of hire companies, some are getting better right now, but you return a hire car, it'll go straight around to the Valley Bay, but will it go around to the digital cleaning bay? Probably not. And there's a lot of personal data left on, on hire cars as well. Um, and they've, they've got a, you know, a potential problem from that point of view as well, depending on what people do with the car when they've, when they've got it. We've got a lot of these guest accounts, a lot of infotainment systems having personal accounts associated with them these days. Um, if people are starting to do that, you've other data that's been shared back with the manufacturer as well via the full, what I would call, vehicle ecosystem um, mm. in respect of it, notwithstanding the, the physical data that remains on a vehicle as well. The funny thing is that I always think people basically agree to give out all their information just by connecting a phone to their car. Um, and of course, you always have the terms and conditions, and we all know no one reads them. Um, it is what it is. Yeah. But... No matter how you interact with your car, data is always going to be taken from you and then just distributed to any type of way. And people are so afraid that their data is going to be leaked to some extent or that data gets to parties where it doesn't belong. But they're, they so freely give it up by just using those type of systems. And it's like everybody knows, but uh, if we don't really know, if we don't know what's happened, what happens to our data, I guess it's fine. Yeah, it it is. It's down to personal responsibility, and I, I guess those people who are, um, you know, con concerned about privacy, will take the time to read and understand, you know, what what's going on with regards to that. But I just think it's a really difficult area to police, Denise, in the sense that if I get in an Uber and and have a, I've had a few drinks and I've no charge on my device, 
and I just say, can I plug my device in to charge off your off your car? Because they've got a cable sitting there in the front. All of mm-hmm. a sudden, my personal data could now have just you know disappeared oh, yeah. onto onto somebody else's vehicle. And what's what's you know in that scenario, what's an Uber driver or a any sort of taxi driver um, supposed to do around, well, excuse me, sorry, but you're about to give up your personal, you know, sign this disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Where where does it, you know, where does it end because of the, the nature of vehicles in the sense that they are a l- little bit communal um, in some areas? And um, I just think if people are concerned around privacy, then they <laughs> They need to take the they need to take their own um, personal steps in in securing that. Speak to the manufacturer, speak to the dealership, speak to the OEM. Do um, you know? Um, do requests, you know, data protection requests to the manufacturer to see what they hold um, about them, despite what that what they're being said. Um, I may or may not have done that in the past to know what the manufacturer is storing for investigative purposes um as well but you know at the end of the day we've all some personal responsibility to to take around that and unless you want to remain completely off the radar then you're just either not going to walk into any smart city where there may be cctv you're not going to have um a smartphone you're not going to have a bank account um you know all these digital avenues that are involved in our lives now Somewhere along the line, you, you're giving up um, that personal data. And yes, there probably is a lot more that can be done in the automotive industry to acknowledge that and tighten it up a little bit with regards to. But I would say that, you know, some are making those strides um, already. But the race for convenience and features and everything else, sometimes it does get a little bit forgotten about. So, of course, those type of practices are legal because we do give up the information actively but would you say it's ethical then i think it depends what you want do you want a vehicle that has these features and gives you that or not then that that's the answer to the question then it is you know ethical if it's been done underhand and you don't know what's happening to your data um then then maybe that is unethical but it's a difficult one because you don't necessarily fully know what the manufacturer is doing with that data. Um, is it being anonymized and sold for marketing purposes? Uh, I give I give this example a lot. You know, if BMW, for example, know where all the all their cars are, um, if they anonymize all that data, they could potentially provide data to another commercial company who say sells fine wines the company that sells fine wines wants to target bmw drivers could they work out when the majority of bmws pass through a certain junction to then put an electronic advertisement on the advertisement board that is at that junction um possibly so is that unethical for BMW to do that when it's not personal data that um, Noel Loudon's driving through this junction. It's just BMW drivers if it is being anonymized. If it's a case of somebody approaches me direct and 
I know that the only way that they've got that information is through the OEM or the manufacturer, then it might have uh, reasons to suggest that it's been been done unethically. So having those type of cards and those type of features and infotainment systems is kind of a trade-off um, when it comes to data security to some extent then. So it, everyone is kind of responsible for their own data as well. It is, um, but... I guess certainly here in the UK, if you're wanting to buy a new vehicle, then these features are coming as standard, aren't they? Um, in the majority of cases. And, you know, the facilities for communication to be off-boarded from the vehicle are there, potentially for other reasons, because you've got e-call, it's been mandated here in the EU. So you've got a car that connects to, um, you know, the network and data can be off-boarded from it. So... Don't know. Maybe there is a market, as we temporarily saw for, say, Nokia thirty three tens to come back uh, <laughs> into into form. Maybe there's a market for a, a manufacturer to provide a vehicle that just you know does a very simplistic task and doesn't have these features, and and, and it may be a good seller. I'm not so sure, but um, the it, when we think about the next generation, and and, and I'm certainly moving on through the generations now. As a young person, would you necessarily go for that type of vehicle where constantly and young people perhaps even more so engage with our devices in the digital world and they maybe expect that while they're, you know, um, while they're moving? I think we're going to see a little bit of shift to the fact that certainly when I grew up, wanting to drive and learning to drive, you wanted to drive. I think there won't be as many drivers I think people will be happy to be transported um, and they won't have that passion, shall we say, as much as there was for, you know, understanding um, driving techniques and understanding how the car worked and all that kind of stuff. I think you will have people that are just happy to be transported around and some people may be still just engaged on a, on their phone without the actual device. I think potentially car, car ownership, is is going to be on the demise and it's just potentially you know um transportation is, is going to look very very differently to what it's done over the last sort of you know 40 to 50 years in the sense that less people may own vehicles and it will just become a a car will be a service um like a lot of other things are in our lives and there won't be as a uh, bigger desire for people to to own a vehicle. I think there's some sort of statistics around, you know, how often do you drive your vehicle out of the percentage of time? And, it, you know, it's less than 10%. You know, it's either at work, parked up, or it's at mm -hmm. home, parked up. And when you start to look at those figures, and we we try to do this, or I've done this in the past with, with older drivers, when we're looking at trying to convince older drivers to give up their license. Um, and I have this conversation sometimes with my parents, you can't sometimes because they lose their independence a little bit. But mm -hmm. because of somebody that's been involved in investigating serious collisions, where as we do get older, we become a little bit more frail and our you know attention is not as good, then there is an argument in those circumstances that a lot of elderly people maybe only use a car twice a week to go to the supermarket and back and only do short journeys. Mm -hmm. Then you weigh up the cost of insuring the car, buying the car versus using a taxi service in, in this day and age, then I think that when you start to present those those arguments and there may be some driver from the manufacturer's OEMs to maybe market that that as well, um, we will see, you know, the ownership of, of vehicles 
go down. And as the levels of autonomy rise, um, then certainly potentially the younger generations will be more happy just to be transported and still use their smart device rather than plugging in to a vehicle. Don't get me wrong, there's still going to be people that want to own vehicles, that want to go out, that want to spend time in their vehicles. It's, it, you know, it's a, it's a big world out there. There's all sorts of different case uses for vehicles and how people want to spend their time in them uh, and, and do with them. But um, I think as, as that does move forward, we will have the refinements of, of what's gone on and people are already actively aware of the data privacy issues and hopefully they will, you know, Manufacturers will get more secure with their, you know, with their infotainment systems and um, be a little bit more open and transparent, perhaps around how they are using the data. And don't forget, they've got the other tech industry of mobile phones to learn from because it's all kind of following suit as to where we've been with mobile phones, to where mm. we are going with, uh, you know, to where we're going with vehicles from a, you know, a design perspective, and maybe um, we will. I don't know. It's difficult. I was going to say maybe we'll see the demise of some of the manufacturers and we narrow down like we have done with the mobile phones in the sense that there aren't as many manufacturers of phones. You're just down to sort of one or two. Will we see that same dominance in the automotive industry? I'm not so sure, um, potentially. But equally, um, it's an exciting space. There's a lot of potential new startups and um, technologies can get accelerated a lot quicker these days. Maybe we will see some others come to market. But I just don't see say somebody like Mercedes or Audi falling off the face of the earth in the automotive industry. Um, watch this video back in ten years. Watch this video back in ten years when, when they don't exist. Um, you didn't know. age well. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, when you think about somebody like Mercedes or a global brand that you know involved in, in F one and that kind of stuff, you, you just can't see um, you just can't see them you know disappearing that quickly. And when you look at all the other brands um, globally that are involved in motorsport as well, as, as just one example and of a, of a of a global entity, you just can't see some of those. Uh, you just can't see some of those brands disappearing as fast as some of say the mobile phones did that we don't see anymore. Um, you know, as often as, as we do, such as your Blackberries. I know they still exist. Your Nokia's. Um, you know, they're not as prevalent. I, I just don't. I just don't see it happening as quickly as that, but who knows? Now, since we're still on the topic of privacy, something that I've always wondered, and this is something a little different, but for the longest time, I remember when we were teenagers, we were always watching videos on YouTube about uh, cars with dash cam, with integrated dash cams. And then we were always told, oh, you could never use those in court because it's illegal to have dash cams in your car. And now we have vehicles that are just packed with cameras in all kinds of angles. Now, would you be able to use this type of those type of recordings or this content in court or for your investigation, or is that still off limits? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, on one side of the fence, we've had third-party dash cams in vehicles for 10, 15 years, and, and nobody really questions it. They either get used and people use them certainly in the uk we wouldn't think twice about that being personal data um versus a tesla that maybe records 360 of what's going on um and can be exported by the you know by the user Mm -hmm. um and the way that we would 
try and access that data with either the owner's permission or speaking to the you know the OEM directly and whether or not um, it can be used and I think I think ultimately it will be used um, because everybody knows that it's there everybody puts these things onto YouTube and um, we, we know they exist so what would preclude, what would preclude that and on a data privacy point of view it's it's potentially only going to show where you were at that given time on that given day as a as an open-minded investigator some people may not want to know that you were there <laughs> at that given time on that given day um depending on what you've been up to um but you would then either not make that available or you would resist it in some way either you wouldn't hang around and how would you then trace that back but I've been out of law enforcement for seven years now, and it must be an absolute nightmare because you look at all the ring doorbells and other CCTV mm-hmm. opportunities that exist that probably were still in their early phases um, when I left the police. And that will be a strategy for some investigations now. There will, you know, previously I would have done a house to house seek and knock on doors and speak to people. Now, part of that house to house strategy must be, you know, ring doorbells, and people are then potentially giving up personal data from from other devices so i think there's there's other areas um to learn from i don't potentially see it being being an issue i think the issues are going to be drivers deleting that data and then trying to recover it um because Mm -hmm. if you've incriminated yourself by virtue of the fact that the car's recording what's going on um then and there's a way to there's a way to easily manipulate that by going into the infotainment system and just deleting you know the, the last incident or however you may do that then there might be um you know the need for investigation and appropriate you know court orders depending on where your jurisdiction is you know around um around obtaining that that data if you need to um but i I think somebody could potentially say no that's my data and i'm not i'm not giving you it and then certainly in the uk we would potentially be making an application to the court and saying this is a serious offence, somebody's died, or maybe not. If it's a low-level crime, then privacy might be respected um, and the court would maybe give a, an indication as to whether or not they should be made to make that available to the investigation. But you could potentially force people to give up that information if it was crucial to a yeah, case then. I think so, yeah. As we have done in the past with manufacturers, you know, I've been to court before and, and asked the court, you know, I believe that this OEM has got certain data that could assist this investigation. And you do that in, I've seen it in not just OEMs, but in other areas of investigation, TV companies, you know, that have got personal or private or intellectual property that they don't want to make public. Um, and you may, there's a, there's ways around it. You may get the court to issue a court order to say it's made available. Then, if it is made available, you may have it heard in a private hearing. If it is, you know, sensitive information or commercially sensitive information to, um, you know, manufacturers of devices or technology. Now, we've been talking about infotainment systems for a long time, and you also said it's kind of its own market at this point. Now, if we have a look at phone companies, there's now about two big players that. Most of the people are either Android users or they love their iPhone. And there's 
a battle between both parties. Now, for a lot of OEMs, we see that they still develop their very own infotainment systems. Some of them use um, Android for, for the vehicle, but most do still make their own systems. Now, do you think that it would be a necessary switch for auto manufacturers to switch to maybe a Google system, or is it still does it still make sense for them to develop their own systems? It's a difficult. It's a, I think the 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 manufacturer is responsible for a safety critical system, so they're going to have to be really mindful if they're going to trust a third party company with their safety critical system and with a technology that interfaces with that safety critical system. So, I think. At the moment, there is still, and um, you know, we see that now with, I think, was it only last year, Mercedes-Benz OS, you know, was announced, and you know, they're doing their own thing with regards to that. Um, I think a lot of the German manufacturers potentially want to keep things in house and and private to a degree as well. If they are keen to keep that system protected, that safety critical system of the vehicle, then. I think they'll want to do things in-house. And mm -hmm. the flip side of that is they have the control and they have the monopoly over the data that's being generated. They're creating their own ecosystem and their own, you know, their own brand. I think there's advantages for um, manufacturers to interface with the likes of Google, um, Android, Apple. Um, who knows what Apple are doing in the background? They've been very quiet mm -hmm. on their... Um, car front at the moment, um, and whether or not that is a mark, you know, something that could become a market disruptor. But a lot of these tech firms, they're not um, car manufacturers, and for the tech firms to go the other way and become car manufacturers as well, and, and be able to put together safety critical systems, I, I think it's not going to happen. So it's how much the manufacturers want to reach out into that space to help with either providing a user experience, mm -hmm. um, providing something that people are familiar with, with with what we you know what we have already in respect of Apple CarPlay and and Android and Android Auto. Um, I think you will see a shift potentially in staff that have worked in those environments coming in to work alongside safety engineers in the automotive industry so that the they're they're working together on those things rather than segregated or using the tech firm to to integrate i think you will not that i've you know not that i've spent a lot of time working in the automotive industry from that perspective but i think if I got back to what I was talking about at the start of this conversation around the policing needing specialists in different areas, mm -hmm. the automotive industry um, is going to need specialists in other areas. And I think this was spoken about, I can't remember who was talking about it a few months ago. It could have been Ford, I think, whereby, you know, safety engineers and how the vehicle is put together to be safe is completely different to how it's put together for you know infotainment and, and entertainment mm -hmm. purposes and you're never going to deploy a safety critical system from the cloud is, is one phrase i remember um 
as, as an example. And, and I think maybe you will see more a shift in skill sets for of staff that will work inside um, OEMs to create those um, that their own for the foreseeable. Again, <laughs> watch this back in five years, and <laughs> they've we'll all have a they've chat all gone. Again. They've all gone. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think it's it goes back to what I was saying before. It's a little bit slow time, isn't it? By the time if Mercedes announce you know their own operating system, it's not even in the hands of users. And then mm-hmm. they've got to go through all this, you know, phase of getting it out there, then getting feedback, and it could be it could be a while before we do see them, um, you know, you know, doing you know doing that just by very virtue of the the fact that the way the automotive industry is that if you're going to put a safety critical system out on the road, you need to know that it's it's right and and it's going to do its its job and its um, for it's been designed to do. You don't get that feedback. Um, you don't get that feedback straight away, and it's up to the OEMs to listen to what you know, listen to what people want, and then go back in, redesign, and 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 shift things forward again. How quickly they can do that, um, you know, is is unknown. But it it never stops, and there's that many out out there doing it. You can't sort of keep tabs on on them all unless. Mm-hmm. Use some resource such as screens. <laughs> now, hypothetically, if all the car manufacturers decided today that they're all going to use Android for their systems, would that make your job easier? Because all the cars had the same system, so you kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Or would it make it harder? No, it would, it would make it. It would make it easier because you're just dealing with one system. Um, the, well, going forward, it would. Um, as I touched upon before, at the moment you've just got that many different um, infotainment systems out there that you know some are still proprietary file systems. A lot of the technologies on them are, are old technologies, uh, and this is where I say maybe some assistance from um, the tech side of things would accelerate that. But it would certainly make it it would make it easier once you you understand and know system, and it would just mirror, you know, vehicle mm-hmm. forensics is 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 you know what mobile forensics was. Five, ten, fifteen years ago, it's it's that same scenario. In those days, that's what digital forensics investigators were having to do, dealing with multiple different devices. Whereas now, you generally, if you're seizing the phone off a suspect, it's it's one or the other, and it's on one iOS version versus you know Android's version, um, and then you just got to learn the nuances as to how you overcome those um, encryptions or difficulties of getting into devices. But you've only that one challenge. And, you know, from R&D on, on mobile forensics, people can just go out and buy an iPhone as soon as it comes out and, and work out what they need to work out as to how they may overcome getting into it, et cetera, and getting investigative data off it. <laughs> Even if it was just one car, you know, I, I, I would be into potentially £30,000 to buy a new car to market. Um, and at the moment, there's just that many of them that could be involved. You just can't, can't service that request. So it would make it so much easier if, if every car had that same system in it, yeah. Now, one final and last question before I let you go. What do you think, what kind of challenges will your company face in the future? Where, What is the future of your company or what do you have planned? The Well, what we're trying to do at the moment is We've learned a lot over the last seven years, and there is 
um, a lack of capability around this type of work. So over the last 18 months, two years, we've transitioned into developing a training program. And oh. we now um, offer training in vehicle system forensics from start to finish, from crime scene to courtroom, um, taking people through the you know, planning of an investigation at the vehicle itself, doing those manual examinations and going through all those, you know, potential screens, using tools at the vehicle to get data off, to removing components, to then um, working on these solutions and rebuilding these fragmented file systems and the fragmented infotainment market that's out there at the moment for the vehicles that we see here in Europe and the UK. And to then finally, when you do get that data, understanding the limitations of the data and the nuances of the data. There's a lot of stuff that will go on with technology, um, such as GNSS data that comes into a vehicle. So we have an infotainment system at the moment that the receiver will receive the GNSS fixes, but immediately, if that's fallen off the road, it will then give a fix that is on the road so that it's presenting to the in the user interface the actual position of where it should be so that the map and the user interface is a nice, pleasant experience. If you don't know that those two GPS coordinates exist and you're just going to use the one that the system is, you know, you're going to ignore what the system originally recorded versus what it's given out to the user... Mm-hmm that can get you into all sorts of difficulties when you get into court if you've got another expert that understands how that system's working. So we're, we're trying to get this um, training out to those people that need it because it is, even though we've been sort of doing this last seven years, it's still new to investigators. And they're kind of sometimes taking this data on face value. And it goes back to what I said at the start. I'm a passionate investigator. I'm a passionate person about getting to the truth. Certainly when somebody's died, I'm a former family liaison officer, which means you're interacting with families that have lost somebody. You can't afford to to get it wrong. So Mm -hmm. we've kind of packaged this up um, into a a training program. And that's where we see ourselves going, as well as still keeping live on doing casework, but maybe reducing that down a little bit to concentrate on delivering the training. But then that empowers those investigators to be able to do the work themselves without us having to do the work for them. So that's what... (coughs) That's that's the sort of next next phase um, over the next few years with regards to that. We want to concentrate on educating people around this. Um, we've developed an application for that, and we see that being able to be you know spread out you know globally as well to improve investigations as the automotive industry is going to find itself um, going through a really interesting phase. And these incidents, um, whether it be collisions or crimes are going to be continuing, um, unfortunately. Um, you know, there are too many people that die on the roads as a result of collisions, and there's a lot of crime that still goes on in this world. And um, we just want to be able to contribute from our knowledge and give back um, over the next few years and still work on, on trying to develop some solutions where we meet the new challenges. So making the world a safer place, car by car, system by system. <laughs> it's, a ma- it's a massive task, Denise, but we're just a small cog in an extremely big wheel. And um, if we can do anything to uh, to help that, then that, that's, that's the main goal. That sounds good. And I hope you're going to keep doing that. And please keep us updated on what is going to happen in the future. We will do. Thank you very much for having us today. Thank you very much. Cheers. It was great having you today. And uh, I hope we're going to have a second one at some point. 
Absolutely.